0: Welcome to Screen Talk, IndyWire's weekly movie podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, and my usual sparring partner, Ann Thompson, is still out, but I have two very special guests for separate segments this week, starting with our box office reporter, Tom Brueggemann, and followed by Kate Erbland, our film editor, who will talk to us about some of the highlights and lowlights of the summer movie season. So let's get into it. Tom, how are you doing out in the desert these days? Waiting for the summer to end. It's got to be uh, the humid part of the summer,
2: which so is always the... It's difficult. Yeah. In a few weeks.
0: You'll get to the other side of that, of course, uh, for a lot of people, that that has meant sitting inside in air-conditioned places, which in the before times was a good thing for the movie business because people could go watch a lot of movies. Now, it's hard to know where people are sitting in because, of course, box office is not what it used to be. At the same time, it started with a pretty explosive moment, didn't it, with, with Top Gun Maverick? And I guess what I'm curious to know from you is looking back on this summer season, we knew Top Gun... Was Tracking pretty well and was gonna make a lot of money. But bottom line, how did this performance and the summer box office as a whole kind of um compare with expectations early on?
2: Uh Top Gun specifically, it's its domestic gross is probably three times what the estimate was. The season overall, it's hard to typify good, bad, and different, uh, specifically uh without the context of the greater world because the Comparison now isn't just to how theaters have done in the past. It's how they're doing with competitive platforms and specifically threats to them. The grosses, you know, I think we're a little bit overhyped. Uh, the figures paired to 2019, what I ended up doing in, in my article, which was just, uh, just published, was um, in call the summer, uh, unlike the way the standard way of doing it is, the season starting with when the Marvel film opened up and comparing that to 2019. Yeah, so that, that year, Avengers Endgame uh, opened up at the end of April. This year, Doctor Strange was for a weekend in May. Curiously, doing summer that way, summer was about 70, 71% of 2019. Three years ago, the last real summer. Also, interestingly, the previous couple months of spring was 70% of 2019. And Christmas, the Christmas holiday season this year was seventy percent of of 2019. That sort of is a little bit worrisome because it means that we may be at or about what the new normal is. Hmm. It's a little bit scarier because ticket prices. There aren't any official figures. It used to be an annual figure that 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 was released by the U.S. Trade Association, uh, but the guess within the industry is that ticket prices have gone up 20% more since 2019. You're talking about a total audience that is under 60% of what it was three years ago. And that's serious for any business. Um, But it's not the theater's fault, uh, because top five films this summer uh, all did over $300 million dollars. And that's the same number of, of, of films that did that in 2019. The difference is those films accounted for about two-thirds of the business, where in 2019 they were a little bit over half the business. So it's the, the lack of releases uh, would come about for, which came up for a bunch of reasons, including the fact that there were production slowdowns during uh, 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 COVID, uh, but also because fewer films already you know, uh, before COVID were being produced uh, in a lot of areas, particularly comedies, uh, and the smaller level film has just just really diminished within the marketplace. And then a whole bunch of films have been shifted over to non-theatrical venues. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. theaters are in a situation where they can claim they did probably about as well as they could have, and and that, that it isn't so much the audience isn't coming back but there aren't enough films for the audiences out there to see. Uh, yeah, that doesn't make the bottom line any better. But 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 the 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 summary for from the summer that that's really helpful for theaters is that their enemy, their the their their competition, the streaming go direct to uh, skip theaters or go early to the theaters uh, is all of a sudden much more challenged than it was a few months ago.
0: And of oh. course there's there's a it's important to distinguish between what kinds of theaters we're talking about here there's the multiplexes and everything that they're playing and then there's there's the art houses and there's a tremendous gulf there and even as we you know sort of we can celebrate top gun doing something or at least proving something about some kind of viability for theaters by and large we haven't really seen art house successes with the exception of something like everything everywhere all at once which, as you have pointed out before, really is played more as a commercial movie. So how do you sort of explain that gulf between the art house and the multiplex right now?
2: Well, factors involved are that because specialized film costs so much less to make, the um, uh, attraction to home markets, which is much more an older audience, which is similar to much of the makeup for the specialized market, It's much more attractive. There, you're going to continue to have as much um, competition as 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 than than what is happening now for the the theatrical studio wide releases. The grosses for for films this year are about the same as they were in 2019, and which would surprise me. The difference is that it's about 100 million each for A24, led by everything, uh, everywhere, and Focus and about $60 for everybody else. Uh, So it's, whereas previously, it's much more evenly divided among four or five, six top uh, distributors, usually Fox Searchlight in the mix, uh, uh, often Neon, uh, Sony Classics, uh, uh, and I'm forgetting major companies right now. But what's happened so far this year is much less important than what happens the rest of the year because post-festival into early next year, is going to be the key time for Specialized, similar to what this was for uh, studio-wide releases. So it's very definitely a work in progress. What's happened for theaters is that uh, because of the less in windows, it's become, and, and, and less reliance on key theaters in New York and Los Angeles, as really in Los Angeles several key uh, platform theaters have closed, but mainly because of windows and wanting to get the films out quickly, uh, to home viewing. Uh, the model from before of opening up New York and L.A. and over the next two, three weeks, adding new th- cities, adding yeah. a few theaters to existing uh, cities that have opened, no longer makes as much sense. Mm-hmm. Combined with the fact that more than ever in history, uh, a wide number of commercial theaters are not only available, but are begging for whatever film they could play. Oh, the irony. <laughs> and, yeah, that, that, that all of a sudden, any film that wants to could open up in 200, 500, 1,000, you know, under the right circumstances, up to 3,000 theaters. And even though all those, a lot of those theaters might be grossing $800,000 a week, that money adds up. Right. Uh, and, but in the meantime, because all those extra theaters are playing the films the core specialized indie and other theaters no longer have the exclusivity for them. Mm -hmm. So their gross is proportionately fine, Uh, even as, you know, everything everywhere, the 68, 60 million dollars. uh, Extraordinary.
0: So speaking of theaters being in desperate situations, let's talk about one news item from the past week, which is Cineworld, which owns the Regal chain going bankrupt. Um, Cineworld obviously is UK based company, but is filing or seems to be exploring filing chapter 11 in in the U.S. Anytime people do that, they always say, well, chapter 11 is it's not such a big deal. You're just restructuring. Um, And you wrote a piece kind of explaining, well, this doesn't mean the Regal theaters are going away, but how bad is it? What does it really portend for the future of a pretty significant multiplex chain?
2: Regal, uh, Sydney World is the second biggest in the world. Regal is the second biggest in, in the United States. I mean, obviously, COVID is a huge factor in this. Difference between Regal, Cineworld, and AMC and Cinemark, the other two major, uh, dominant uh, domestic exhibitors, is that a little bit before COVID, Cineworld bought Regal for I think it was three point two billion dollars, and Cineworld, a well-established, mostly European chain, really reached very, very far to do that. They took a big gamble in doing that. And there's no way in the world, if they had any inkling that something like that was going to happen, they would have tried it. So they are in a little bit more precarious a situation. AMC has had a lot of debt uh, because of their size and then because of a lot of shrewd, you know, certainly shrewd, you know, somewhat daring, uh, audacious uh, uh, moves by their uh, CEO and, uh, and the, the supporting retail stockholders. They've been able to Get by so far. Uh, Long term, they still have an awful lot of debt, and so can be a little bit vulnerable. Cinemark is yeah. domestic was the least leveraged. They look best longer term, even though they still have some of the other problems. The difference among, you know, the distinction among the three big chains that Regal doesn't dominate any major region or city. AMC is extremely powerful in New York and Los Angeles and Chicago. Cinemark uh, has big, big parts of the country, the South, the West, that they are the only game in town. Uh, mm-hmm. And Rego tends to be in places mostly where other people are already. Nearly every circuit, Cinemark's I think an exception, but nearly every circuit, uh, particularly around 20 years ago after there was a huge amount of expansion and people uh, rolled up a lot of debt, there were, you know, the majority of the exhibitors did file chapter 11. But it was a different world. It was uh, not, you didn't have the threats that there are right now. I'm not the best informed person on regal situation. My guess as an informed observer is that there's going to be significant changes. Now, at the very least, I would anticipate that the acceleration of some of their weaker theaters just shut it down, if, you know, even... Better theaters if they can get out of the leases or or, or sell them off. And it's difficult because you know we're heading into a couple more months of virtually no box office. Very little being released. October and November and, and and Christmas improve, but Christmas at this point is could be eighty percent more Avatar. Uh, yeah, it's got to be huge. You know, this is a long term business in terms of people have to project up to years ahead. Decisions are going to be made for the movies that are going to be made for theaters and uh, or go through theaters that other venues are being made right now. But even the positive stuff that's happened over the summer, it's going to take a while to really see the fruits of that
0: kind of theater. Right, right. Well, you touched on the the last thing that, that we should address, which is here we are at the end of the summer season and the fall season, it's looking kind of dicey. I mean, you mentioned Avatar, there's Wakanda Forever. These movies are coming out well towards the end of the year, which means even as some of us are heading off to the fall festivals and we're going to see a lot of movies, for the most audiences, it's going to be kind of a dead zone, right? I mean, there just doesn't feel like there's much that could get people to go to a movie theater in September. No,
2: no. I mean, there have been major horror films, it's sequels. The Joker was October. Uh, the Star is Born was October. The Martian was, there I have been a lot of big early fall pictures. There's Black Adam in October. Uh, you know, there's other films coming out week by week. Some things may surprise us. There's a bottom to how much business will do. I mean, look at last weekend, where uh, the uh, Japanese anime uh, Dragon Ball did $21 million for the weekend. That's something that you know, would have been un- unheard of previously. Right. It didn't, wasn't a huge deal. certainly has been talked about a lot. A film like RRR, the Indian film, a few months ago, yeah. did a decent amount of business, including some crossover. Um, there's going to have to be you know some sense of, of, of trying to elevate some of these things and uh, yeah. figure out how to do it. But still, yeah, no business is going to be, they'll be lucky between now and, and Thanksgiving if business is fifty. Of what it
0: was three years ago. Well, all I could say is people don't have to despair. They just have to buy tickets to Telluride or Toronto or New York Film Festival, wherever you happen to be. Just get in your car and go to one of those locations. There'll be plenty of movies to see there. And then uh, we'll see how they do theatrically. And then I'll have to bring you back on here to talk about how difficult it is because it's always a fascinating contrast. No matter how exciting it is to be in that bubble, of the festival, it's so much harder to get these things out in the world. But you know, this is a reality we've been dealing with for a long time, even pre-COVID. So, Tom, thank you for being on and uh, providing us the reality check we always need and uh, hope to have you back soon enough. Great
2: pleasure as always. Thanks, Eric. Kate,
0: okay, it's good to have you here. How are you holding up with all the craziness of the fall right around the corner?
1: I mean, I'm, I'm doing a lot of uh, pre-festival screenings. I'm going to Toronto where I will join you and David um, and many of our other colleagues. But I I think it's good. I did three movies yesterday, sort of a a training sprint for Toronto. And I'm excited about a lot of things I've seen. I'm excited about stuff we're going to see. So I'm, I'm tired, but good.
0: It's nice that when the festival season heats up as it seems to be doing this year, it's like all of a sudden we get this sense of almost like a prophetic awareness of what the next few months of movies are going to look like, which we can tell people about the summer movie season, which we're talking about today is usually quite different from that. I mean, if you could go to one film festival and see all the big tent poles, you could really kind of rest easy for a couple of months. But to say it was interesting kind of having a big summer movie season again in a way, because it was like, and one thing after another kind of presented itself. And we were, we kept waiting for like the next thing. And that's, it sounds sort of naive to put it in those terms, but it's been a while since we've had a busy summer movie season. Don't you think like it felt busier in a way. It
1: definitely felt busier. The past few weeks have not been so exciting. You know, I do this weekly where to watch guide for us. Um, in the past like four weeks, every week I start my opening with like, Hey, it's a strange week at the box office. Nothing really big, a few gems sort of chugging along to the start of the fall season. But yeah. there have been some wonderful standouts.
0: Yeah, so how did the quality of the summer movie season kind of compare with the expectations? We had this big kind of explosion with Top Gun right out, out of the gate, launching a can, making a billion, gajillion dollars worldwide, I think a little over a billion dollars. But yep. it was this massive hit at the very start of the summer. And then what happened?
1: I mean, I think... Looking at it, there were obviously a couple Marvel films that I think were disappointing in a lot of ways. I didn't dislike something like Thor as much as other people did, but it didn't feel the same. You got to see this. It's great feeling that we're used to with summer movies, particularly the Marvel kind. Top Gun for me was obviously a huge highlight. I don't think there's any secret that I loved it. I saw it three times in theaters, which is embarrassing, but I'm happy to share that.
0: It's Um, impressive. IMAX every time or?
1: Twice in IMAX. My uh, press screening was actually uh, in the Dolby Theater at Lincoln Square, which if you're familiar with it, it's really lovely, great sound. But then we went back two more times for IMAX. And the thing about those screenings that was amazing, they felt like events. They felt like It felt like going to a Broadway show, like people were milling around the lobby and they were excited and people were involved. So that's what I'm gonna remember most from the summer. It it did not disappoint me at all, but most of the other big tent poles, um, I, I certainly didn't go see them three times.
0: Right. Yeah. It was something I didn't love Top Gun Maverick, but I could certainly like settle into the experience of watching that movie, the way that I would watch like a football game, even though I don't love football, like I can get the drama of it and the scale and all that kind of stuff. It almost makes you think it's like if movie theaters could some figure out a way to like play sports and then the occasional like Top Gun type of temple, they might be in better shape than they are right now. But (laughs) it's, it's also, it's, it's kind of interesting because, you know, The Marvel movies that we did get uh, were pretty significant in terms of what they were doing, like narratively for the MCU, Uh, but they didn't seem to make the same kind of noise. And I don't know if you're getting this sense, but to me, it's like the MCU has just gotten so busy where it's like hard to keep track of whether it's time to go see a movie in theaters or whether it's time to catch up with something on Disney Plus. And then in the middle of the summer, New York Comic, or I'm sorry, New York Comic in New York. So I only think in terms of New York. Comic Con <laughs> happened. The big one on the West Coast uh, happened, and and there was a big uh, MCU event there, of course. And, gave, and they gave us a big timeline. What is your sense from the Marvel movies that we got this summer about kind of where things are at? What are what is the 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 expectation for this franchise based on um, the two films that we got?
1: Well, two immediate thoughts. When you mentioned that you wanted to talk about Comic-Con today, I had to go back and look back at our coverage from Comic-Con to remind myself what movies Marvel had announced, which is a very bad right. sign because I'm kind of a nerd about that stuff and I tend to remember stuff. And I was, there are a few things I was like, oh, yeah, this is going to be good. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I do think that it's gotten so big and unwieldy. People don't know what they need to watch. I don't have a lot of time to watch TV and I still feel like I can go into these movies and know what's going on, but there's definitely something missing. And I think with this last round of films, you know, phase three was all leading up to the big Avengers, Avengers showdown. And there's no sense of what this is all leading to. And I think that's been the big problem. Like you have to watch dozens of hours of TV and movies to understand what's going on, but I still don't know what we're heading toward. But some of the movies they did announced at Comic-Con Indicate something bigger. There's two more Avengers movies coming. The Fantastic Four is finally coming. But it's still missing this sort of forward motion that I think we all got really used to when it comes to these films. And I assume that there's a plan there. There has to be, but I don't know what it is. And I think also other casual fans probably feel that way too. And I don't think that's a good feeling
0: for Marvel. It makes you wonder if Kevin Feige does as well. I mean, not to pin it all on one person, but it reminds me on a larger scale. It's almost like when we all loved lost when that was on TV right. and it felt like lost was building towards something amazing and it kept getting more and more exciting as they added new details of so the mythology and there were different character plot lines you're following. And then of course, the finale of lost was like one of the most reviled ever. On some <laughs> level, Like it was so obvious by then that they'd added all these little details without really knowing what the big picture was. And right. so, you know, there must be some kind of strategy here we know there's like a secret wars plot line and that's in the comics but i don't know it just i worry that when things get too busy every everything suffers as a result so like dr strange was super fun but like if we only had dr strange and and then um thor it would be much easier to kind of invest in the stakes of the MCU. Now I kind of feel like I all I I have to know what's happening on Ms. Marvel or whatever, just so that I'm not missing some crucial plot detail. Do you get that sense too?
1: Yes. And I mean, I don't really have a lot of time to watch TV. I, I live with someone who watches all the TV shows too. So he catches me up on the big points. But it just feels like such a, you know, it's just such a time output to to maybe get a couple of jokes. And if I had a sense that no, it's really important, all these things are fitting together, they're going to fit together for something great that you are going to love and audiences are going to love, I might feel right. different. I just right. don't have that feeling.
0: Right. Let's talk about Thor for a second because. The expectations with Thor were so high, given that, that, uh, you know, Taika Waititi kind of like reinvented that character, like the world he was in by making him more fun. I think the thing that was it was interesting about Thor in that sense is that it was still a a very well made movie. It was just way more downbeat than people were probably (laughs) expecting. Like it was just like a really sad movie. And that's a, that's a tough commercial gamble. So it's another side of that Marvel equation where it's like you have a few of your kind of auteur types, the Taika's or Ryan Coogler's, but what happens when they want to make a movie that's not, you know, the thing that will make people want to go back and see this thing three times? I mean, you didn't yep. need to see that movie again. It makes it feel kind of crappy at the end. No, you know, oh God, like, no. One thing that all of this conversation about summer movies doesn't do is it doesn't really give much attention to a lot of the stuff that's getting out there and not getting a lot of attention. Because even if, you know, uh, Thor wasn't necessarily everyone's cup of tea, it had so much marketing and hype behind it that it's going to get attention no matter what. And, you know, as much as like the art house scene has been struggling of late, There's been a lot of good stuff that's been released. So one thing we thought would be fun to do for this episode is to kind of go through and look at a couple of uh, uh, sort of hidden gems from the summer movie season that people can still watch. They still exist as movies. Some of them are even in theaters right now. I know you've got a couple on your list and I've got some too. So why don't you share yours first?
1: Okay. Well, I had one that we were going to talk about a little bit uh because you don't totally agree with it being under the radar, which I think I'm fine. I understand. We'll get to that. But the ones that I had, I have a couple um that are actually on streaming right now, which yeah. first of all, there's Quinn Shepard's uh Hulu movie from Searchlight called Not Okay, which stars one of our favorites, Zoe Deutsch, as a sort of wannabe influencer who gets mixed up in um a situation way beyond her control and sort of embraces it in the worst possible way. I think it's really yeah. funny. It's really smart. Um, and then also now streaming on Shudder is Watcher, which is like this creepy, uh, like, you know, strange person in a strange land, maybe being watched by their weird neighbor film um, yeah. that I quite enjoyed with one of another one of our favorites, Micah Monroe, who is a wonderful scream queen and gets to do a different sort of twist on, on yeah, that really... archetype.
0: I really enjoyed that. It was a yeah. psycho thriller, kind of uh, like early Polanski-ish kind of a thing, like very studied piece of filmmaking. And and that director, Chloe Okuna, seems like somebody who could really yeah. go somewhere. So that's a, that's a good one to flag. And I think it's it's probably done well on VOD for IFC because it's a, it's a tight genre movie. So hopefully people are discovering that. But of course, we don't know because we don't, yeah. we don't see those numbers. So nope. um, I want to flag a movie that's actually opening this week. Uh, called Funny Pages and it's still a hidden gem even though it's opening this week because it's just not getting the kind of attention that a lot of other things are although I just saw Manola Dargis reading that in the New York Times which was very cool Perfect. and that's Funny Pages which is a directorial debut of, uh, of Owen Klein uh, not you know just the privileged son of Kevin Klein and Phoebe Cates and and the child <laughs> actor from The Squid and the Whale but a real uh, scrappy New York filmmaker in the sense that this is a guy who even after he was in that Noah Baumbach movie interned at anthology and became this like analog film fetishist of sorts who was <laughs> always hanging out in the dusty aisles of Kim's video. And uh, the Safdie brothers produce this movie. It's very akin to their work. It's about this uh, kind of, um, You know, it's a teenager who wants to be a cartoonist and he apprentices with a cartoonist who's like kind of full of shit and the (laughs) relationship they have goes wrong in a lot of ways. It's a really fun, dark comedy. I hope people check out. And then another movie that opened recently, which I know both of us are are pretty high on is Emily the Criminal, uh, which we covered way back at Sundance virtually, but is now actually in theaters. And I think this one is worth singling out for two reasons. One is Aubrey Plaza, who's really good in it. And it's this sort of, you know, Darden brothers, like kind of like social thriller about a woman driven to a life of crime because of her student debt. And the other is because it's about student debt, which was just canceled by Joe Biden this week. So it feels almost like the movie, like inserted itself right into the zeitgeist. But what do you like about Emily the criminal?
1: I mean, like you said, I think Aubrey's wonderful in it. And I think it's a great combination of the sort of inherent darkness that she has, but a deep humor and somehow being very relatable. I just, I, I love seeing her in this. I love seeing her in films like this. Like I, you know, I was a big fan of her performance in Black Bear, which was at Sundance a couple of years ago. And this is a different kind of twist on on that sort of thing. And she's in Spin Me Round right now, which she gets to be a little more light in, but Emily the Criminal mm-hmm. to me, it's, it's her best performance. And it's it's just wonderfully made and smart and makes you think about stuff and is still entertaining. And as you said, very timely and topical.
0: Yeah, I know. it's And it's, it's the kind of thing where, yeah, I mean, maybe it doesn't end up being a big year-end awards conversation, but hopefully somebody like the Indie Spirits comes back to this. She produced the movie too, and it feels like it's a nice effort to sort of kind of push her performative abilities into material that's not as familiar as some of the other stuff that that she's obviously known for. I did a Q&A for her and of course there were a million people coming up to her afterward saying like I'm big I'm a big Park and Rec fan. You know and it's like if Parks and Rec is the only thing you know Aubrey Plaza from this movie will surprise you and that's clearly a calculation and you know more actors should be thinking in those terms I think when they get to be known for a certain kind of Performance. So that was really cool to see. Um, I really love this documentary called Three Minutes of Lengthening. Have you seen this one? Uh, I have which,
1: not. I know we have a wonderful review for it.
0: Yeah, it's and it's been widely well reviewed, but it's still kind of under under the radar in a way. It's basically there was a home movie that was shot by a family on vacation in 1938 in this small town in Poland, and pretty much everybody in that town was, was killed by the Nazis. Very, very few people. And it takes the three minutes of footage and it slows it down and adds voice over to study, like basically every angle, like tiny blurry faces in the corner of a frame. Who could that person be based on where they're dressed and where they're standing and all that kind of stuff. And it's just, it's a really cool sort of, uh, uh, almost like archaeological process in a way. that's like using this 16 millimeter film, and it's a really smart way of doing that. It's uh, it's directed by Bian- Bianca Stigder, who's C um, uh, McQueen's wife, and is a is a great journalist. And um, yeah, it's just, it's the kind of thing where it's like, you know, I don't know if it ends up getting on the documentary shortlist because it's a competitive year, but it's a really innovative approach to the nonfiction form. So I hope people check that one out. And then I also wanted to just uh, jump back to the, to to the horror side of things for one second and talk about resurrection, which is Mm -hmm. a totally, totally wild movie uh, with Rebecca Hall, who of course always takes great gambles on, on genre movies. And uh, it's like a just really crazy Cronenbergian horror film of sorts. Did you get a chance to see that one at at Sundance?
1: I did. And, you know, Rebecca Hall, I'm a huge, huge admirer of her work. But yeah, like when she does a when she does anything, she goes full out. But in this, she just she goes somewhere completely different. And it's very unexpected. And I've talked to people about it afterwards who had no idea about where it was going to go, which is sort of my favorite thing.
0: Sounds like you weren't the, the biggest fan at the end of the day.
1: I I mean, I I loved what it was trying to do and I love Rebecca in it. I think it just, maybe it unsettled me so much that it's hard for me to be like, oh, I loved it. But also that's a good thing too when you're still yeah. feeling
0: it. Yeah, so basically like Tom Roth shows up at a certain point in this movie as this abusive ex of hers and a lot of weird stuff happens that may or may not be real. And so that taps into some very legitimate, fears of of you know stalking and abusive relationships and so forth as the horror genre should but but it, the way in which it does it it's like it's an audience movie you see it with people and they're like what the hell did i just watch <laughs> like there's the last few minutes of that movie i just love that they take these wild swings and more people should be doing that um but let's talk about the movie's that didn't do that for us and that didn't deliver because there were a few duds. And it's one thing to say, like, oh, people were kind of let down by Thor or whatever for me to say, like, Top Gun isn't for me. But those movies worked by and large, at least to the extent they were trying something and succeeded to doing the thing they were trying to do. What do you think were kind of the bigger duds of the summer movie season?
1: Well, for me, I think the biggest of the big duds was Jurassic World Dominion. And you know, we've written about this together and we've talked about this. Mm-hmm. I just think it's it's shocking to me to to take a, a concept like there's a there's there's dinosaurs all over the world and humans are, you know, now about to be endangered and go where that film goes.
0: Yeah, it I know. Just, it was, yeah. It was such yeah. a bummer. Well, it's yeah, really yeah. The, the crazy thing about that movie, especially because it was like so delayed, it was like the first big pandemic delayed production, was that it it didn't get anything right about what should be appealing, with respect to it to to its its content, right? Like the fact that you've got the original trio from the move from the first movie, you know, to have Laura Dern, Jeff Goldwyn, Sam Neill together, kind of sort of saving the day or whatever is a cool concept and in theory certain moments should just kind of take care of themselves but there was something about like how underwritten it was and how clumsy so many scenes were that was just like baffling to me like you have so many resources and you're trying to do all of these complicated things to bring it home and you can't get somebody to punch up the humor a little bit or i don't know it's just it just felt like a wasted opportunity because obviously Jurassic Park is a really good movie. Yep. Um, but there's that. Um, and then you saw this movie where Idris Elba fought a tiger. Is that right? A tiger. Lion. Already blocked it's a, it a lion. It it's a <laughs> lion, okay. I wasn't sure because the CGI looked so bad in trailers, I was squinting a lot. Uh what's it called again? It's called Beast. Beast.
1: And it came out beast last is a week. Lion. It came well, out last beast-
0: week. The world the beast is on. a
1: lion, but you you could make the argument that the real beast is our humans, uh, because I think not really just spoiling. I think um, the reason why this lion goes after Idris Elba and his family is because the lion's entire pride has been murdered in the very opening scenes of the film by a bunch of poachers, and so the lion is understandably very upset and is going after any humans that, that he runs into. And unfortunately Mm. Idris Elba and his very nice family run afoul of this lion. So it's sort of, I mean, I'm a huge animal lover. So naturally my affections are usually going to be with the animals, but the film starts from such a weird point where like, I'm on his side (laughs) and I feel bad for Idris and his family. They're innocent. They also make a lot of really bad decisions. So by the end of it, I was like, I don't know. I think the lion had a point.
0: Yeah. Well, if only that made it worth seeing. I, I can't say that I, you're giving me the hard sell here. But <laughs> Idris Elba, man, the, the movie star who just can't figure out what to star in. I mean, it's been years since he was really sort of central. I mean, on TV, he seems to do well. But yeah. moving past the rumors about James Bond, it's you see movies like this and you're like, what's going on here? What is? What calls I'm, have you made here?
1: I'm I'm happy that he's doing... Different films and original films. I mean, he's in another film this week, 3000 Years of Longing, which is certainly very different and is not a, a predictable franchise film.
0: Yeah, no, but good point.
1: Yeah, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're all high quality. Beast is, is not. I wish it was more fun, but it made me feel bad. And I was cheering for the lion.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah, no, 3000 Years of Longing It's a good point. I mean, working with somebody like George Miller and this two-hander with Tilda is a very different kind of thing. It's interesting, though, how, like, you know, when the Studio Paycheck gigs come along, like, these are the Studio Paycheck gigs, you know? Like, where's his John Wick movie or something like that? Like, that could just be, like, a really fun genre exercise. It doesn't have to be so ludicrous. It's, like, one step removed from Sharknado or whatever. (laughs) Anyway, well, I appreciate you, as I'm sure others do. Appreciate you taking a bullet to see that one and review it for the the rest of us. Um, So, uh, briefly, I wanted to talk about uh representation at the box office this summer because you've often looked at um challenges of uh gender parity in the industry and with women directors in particular uh whether or not real progress is being made so what what story did the summer movie season tell us about uh all of that
1: well, I mean, looking at um, the 10-pole films of the summer season, not many of them were directed by women, but I think that there were some really incredible standouts that maybe have not gotten a lot of attention. Uh, Sophie High directed Good Luck to You, Leo Grand which was a big hit at Sundance this year. And even though it did go straight to Hulu is because of various things in the Oscar mix, particularly for star Emma Thompson. I think it's a wonderful film. I think more people should see it. I'm hoping that whatever the Oscar kerfuffle is more people will go see it because of that. I also wanted to shout out uh, Olivia Newman's Where the Crawdads Sing, which has been a huge sort of under the radar hit for Sony. It's adapted from a very well-known and slightly controversial book. It's produced by Reese Witherspoon. It has a theme song from Taylor Swift, but it's the sort of, you know, original content that we're not used to seeing during the summer season. And it made a lot of movie for Sony in kind of a quiet way. And yeah. as I mentioned, Quinn Shepard's not okay. It was, you know, one of my favorites it's on Hulu. And even though I was not a huge fan of it, uh, Lena Dunham's sharp, sharp stick stick uh, was her return to uh I mean, not mainstream, but returned to the theater. And she has another film coming up in the festivals this year, which not saying anything, uh, not breaking any embargoes here. I wasn't a huge fan of Sharpstick. I feel extremely differently about her Catherine Called Birdie, which I am looking forward to being able to talk about more in the coming months.
0: <laughs> nice way to but, answer yeah. that embargo. Yes.
1: Yeah, it's a, really, <laughs> it's a
0: really good point. So, so what's actually a fairly active summer for for women directors and lena dunham i mean i didn't love sharp stick either there were moments where i was like this plot hole also leads into this other plot hole and there were just like a lot of weird things about it but it was obviously a pandemic project that came together quickly um but she is a very distinctive voice as a director and started at a super young age and i is the kind of person where i I feel like we got to keep giving her a shot You know, so I'm excited to see that one. Is there anything else in the fall season, whether at festivals or otherwise, that you're excited to check out?
1: I am obviously very excited to see the new Knives Out at Toronto. I cannot wait to see the Fablemans, even though it's almost three hours long. Maybe even because it's almost three hours long. What isn't Um,
0: almost three hours long these days is they want to be taken seriously. It's like you start with that and work backwards, which is annoying when you're in festival mode.
1: But. Right. Every movie is like 90 minutes or the 140 minutes these days. There's like no in between. Yeah.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. Um. I'm also really excited to see the whale and women talking. And she said,
0: yeah, she said, looks really interesting. I can't wait for us to revisit the Harvey days from the perspective of the actual women reporters instead of Harvey Weinstein. So. God. Uh, maybe you can spot yourself in the background during one of those courtroom scenes or something
1: yeah i was gonna say remember when (laughs) i had to go to court for that that was very much yes very much so revisit that i'm sure
0: well kate thanks for coming on good luck in the days and weeks ahead i'll see you around hustling at the festivals and we'll have you back on to talk about how it all went soon enough
1: thanks eric